according to his looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We're going to be in Philippians 3 once again. <coughs> Philippians 3, if my cough allows me to survive the hour. <coughs> Philippians 3. All right. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask for our Father's faithfulness. Shall we pray? <coughs> Almighty Father, we thank you for this day and the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, uh, for what you want taught tonight. Uh, provide for it to go forth. And we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're uh, wrapping up really our, our Philippians review uh, before the Ukraine trip. We got into uh, chapter 3, and so we'll be resuming the chapter 3 review uh, tonight, Sunday, next week. And then uh, we'll see, either we'll do a review of chapter 4, um, but really what, chapter 4 wasn't that long ago. Um, we'll either do a review of chapter 4, and, and, and there is a benefit actually to running through these slides and, and just doing it in a rapid fire format, so probably we'll do chapter 4 that way, and then we get into Colossians. Also, keep it in prayer, but the Colossians memory books have been ordered, they're on the way now, they're back in print with Scripture Memory Fellowship, and so we're really excited about those, and uh, when they arrive we'll make sure that we let folks know about them and we can start our summer project to memorize 31 verses in uh, in the book of Colossians. All right, before we begin our review, though, we can take time for some Q&A. If, uh, Randy's been waiting three weeks now for this uh, Q&A. I don't know if Wes did any Q&A while he was up here, but I listened to the MP3 file. It didn't sound like he took any questions. The question's in Genesis 37. Okay. Uh, Joseph's dream there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but uh, in verse 2, you know, the father at this point hadn't asked... Uh, Joseph to to give a uh, a, re, uh, a report on his sons, and in verse two there at the very end it says a bad report, and that word bad is deba, mm-hmm. and so did Joseph slander his brothers. It's one thing to bring a, a bad <coughs> negative report, but another to slander. And a definition or or if you could expound on that word, the Hebrew word there. Yeah, and I, I, I've never taken this in a negative way. I, I've never seen anything um, uh, negative related to Joseph at any point. So, uh, yes, it's a bad report, but I think it's because it was an accurate report, that it was a report of the brother's badness, not uh, that it was a, a, uh, a slanderous bad report of otherwise good, good brothers. But at that point, his brothers hadn't been bad to him. You know, that, that occurs later in this chapter. <coughs> Well, let's see. Unless it's a whole history of picking on the little brother. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's, it's eth davar rock, rock. So it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an evil word. It's uh, davar for word and ra'ah for evil. And so, uh, yeah, he brought back a bad report to their father, El Avioth, or Aviem, I'm sorry. 
So yeah, it's a, it's a bad report. I'll uh, make a note on this. Add a note. And see if uh, bad report. Yeah, I've always taken it as reflecting the, the bad conduct of the brothers. That even though it's not specifically spoken of yet as far as their ugliness towards him, mm-hmm. they had plenty of ugliness towards the world at large. Mm-hmm. Plenty of ugliness towards uh, you know, Dinah's uh, you know, the, the thing there with her sister, uh, with the men of Shechem. Um, and these, these brothers were a piece of work. Mm-hmm. And, and that didn't happen overnight. Right. So, yeah, but I made a note, and I will, uh, I will take a look at that. And I will set this in my Q&A notebook. Wednesday evening Q&A. All right. Other questions tonight? Any questions at all? Otherwise, hey, did you know when Jesus died on the cross, it was the payment for your sins. You guys probably knew that. Well, there's a late breaking news article, uh, hard to read, that all of that's a misunderstanding. All of that is just wrong. It's not in the Bible. That if you hold a penal substitutionary atonement, then you've got to get updated. You've got to get with the times because that's not what it was about. That's not in the Bible. That's human philosophy. Of course, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek. This is just pathetic. But uh, somebody sent me that article yesterday and it just broke my heart that, uh, that denying that Jesus' death on the cross was payment for our sins. And, and so, <laughs> beliefnet, belief.net, if you uh, visit that website. I don't recommend that website at all. So it's, uh, it's all New Agey. It's all uh, liberal Protestantism. Uh, Jesus was on the cross to show us what love was like in action. And um, it wasn't paying for our sins. We've got to, we've, we're accountable for our own sins and, uh, and different things. There's just a horrible definition of what it means to even be saved in the first place, you know. So anyway, that's what the liberals are teaching. And uh, if you're not aware of that, uh, bless you. That's actually a sanctified ignorance, I think. And uh, I was not pleased to have been made aware of that. But it is what it is. So, Anyway, you and I, of course, know better. Jesus went to the cross as the payment for our sins. All of our iniquity on him was laid. And that's, uh, that's the plain language of the Scriptures. And uh, we have no problem with that. All right, if there's no other questions tonight, then uh, we can go to Philippians chapter 3. Thanks for the microphone, Chris. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, as we're looking at the profit and loss statement here. Remember, we broke the chapter down into these different sections. <clears throat> the main address begins with rejoice and then beware and then stresses the spiritual reality of our sign and our seal. And uh, this is verses 1 through 6, and we went through those things. Uh, then, after summarizing his impressive credentials, Paul recategorizes them on his profit and loss statement. And that's where uh, we left off uh, before my trip to Ukraine, so that's what I want to pick up on here, verses 7 through 12. And then uh, the, the uh, pressing on the upward way in verses 13 through 16, about forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead and pressing on for the uh, goal of the, uh, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
That's the section there in 13 through 16. And then the heavenly citizenship in verses 17 through 21. A warning against those who are earthly minded and fail to esteem our heavenly citizenship. Not unbelievers, not people outside the church, but believers inside the church. Your, your fellow church members that are enemies of the cross of Christ because they set their mind on the, not on the things above, but on the things below. And we're commanded to set our mind on the things above. And that's the, uh, the impact there. So that's uh, where the review of chapter 3 is going to go for tonight. We're looking at verses 7 through 12 in the prophet and law statement. So whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He took everything out of his, uh, his black side of the ledger and he moved it over to the red side of the ledger. He just reconfigured the whole ledger. And uh, anything that was an asset, he just marked it off as a loss and, uh, and re-reckoned it. comes down to what we reckon when we consider uh, these things in, uh, with divine viewpoint in the plan of God. Everything that was an actual gain for Paul, he has re-reckoned into the loss category. And I believe this completed action uh, took place uh, either during the three days of blindness, I think it probably took longer than three days to recategorize everything. Yeah, I understand as a Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus had an incredible amount of Old Testament theology and Old Testament doctrine. The only problem was he had to reconfigure it all with the identification of Jesus as the Christ. And so he had an awful lot of, of reconfiguring to do in his thought process. And I don't know that he could have done that all in three days. you know. And so uh, the time that he went away to Arabia that's spoken of there in uh, Galatians 1.17, uh, a three-year period of time, uh, that would have been sufficient, especially with Jesus teaching him and the personal appearances that happened there uh, to, uh, to do this re-reckoning. And by the way, don't be afraid to re-reckon uh, as God opens your eyes, if you're humble before the truth of the Word of God, um, in fact, it's, uh, it's, it's problematic if you're, if you're not willing to take a fresh look at things in, uh, in different ways. So if, uh, if, if somebody you know, comes up with something and you think, well, I haven't heard that before, or it's been a while, but you know what? I'll give it a look. I'll honestly look at it. I'm not going to just stick with what I think I've always known all these years. Maybe I've been wrong all this time. I want to look at it with fresh eyes and be humble before the Word of God to see what the Word of God says. All right. Now, uh, of course, we have economic terms here for profit and loss, and these are not uh, evil words. Profit is not a bad thing, uh, despite what our culture tries to convince people. Profit is a good thing. Profit is positive. A profit means that you have been productive to an abundance and uh, that you are emulating the Father because the Father Himself is productive in all that He does. He looks back with appreciation. That's what the Sabbath rest is for, so that God stopped and He looked back, reflected upon what He did, and behold, it was very good. And so, you know, the profit motive is not, is not a greed motive. Profit doesn't equal greed. Profit is, is the appropriate gain that has been uh, realized on the basis of effort, on the basis of... Uh, sweat equity and other things that you are putting into the, uh, the endeavors of what you're doing. And so the Greek vocabulary of kurdos is uh, the noun for gain. The verb kurdino means to gain or to win. 
And, uh, and these are spoken of in positive expressions throughout the New Testament. And so we have gain and we have winning. For example, the purpose for church discipline is you want to gain your brother. You want to win your brother when he listens to your reproof and when he repents and changes his thinking on a, cor- on a course of action that is not biblical. You've won your brother. You've gained your brother in, uh, in these applications. And so, um, I don't know that uh, we have to read every passage on this slide, but uh, we have these here in Philippians, and we had it back in chapter 1, in Philippians 1.21, where he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is a, is a prophet uh, when you are face to face with Jesus Christ. It's infinitely better than being here on this earth. Uh, of course, Philippians 3.7 is our passage tonight. Titus one uh, eleven. Titus one eleven is another use of kurdos that happens there, where it says um, these empty talkers, these false teachers, uh, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And uh, I think the fact that you have to put uh, an adjective next to it, like sordid, uh, in order to invalidate what is otherwise a positive statement. Profit is typically a good thing, uh, but if you have a, an adjective like sorted in front of it, well then that's, that's uh, a different story. And then we have the verb cardino. The question that's asked in Matthew 16, 26, if, if you gain the whole world but lose your soul, is it worth the price? You know, if you can profit, if you, if you gain the entire world but lose your soul, well of course not. Uh, your soul is worth more than the entire world put together. Uh, Matthew 25, look how many times there, verse 16, 17, 20, and 22. <clears throat> and this is, uh, I think we're familiar with this, the, um, I'm on the wrong page here, here we go. The parable of the talents, a man uh, went on a journey, called his own slaves, and trusted his possessions to them. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Okay? Now this is different from the other parable where everybody got the same amount, they got the same single amount. But here they're given a, a variety, they're given a spectrum of, of funds based upon their capacity. And then uh, in the positive applications, they went out and invested, they went out and worked, they went out and put the money to work, and they had a, an increase, they had a gain. And so that's spoken of here. Verse 16, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained, that is, profited five more talents. So now he has ten when he started with five. In verse 17, in the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But it's this third guy that doesn't do anything with them, that doesn't gain. And uh, he just digs a hole in the ground and buries it. And uh, that's what sets him up for the rebuke when... Uh, he uh, said, you could have at least put it in the bank and I could have gotten a little interest out of it rather than what you've done here. So anyway, that's the, uh, the story there. James 4.13. James 4.13. <clears throat> Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. And make a profit, you know? Um, yeah, we can come up with plans and we can identify different things 
And uh, if you're willing to relocate, if you're willing to move, then there are other places that, uh, that other money can be made in different ways. Um, I tell you, you can go to Kiev, Ukraine and live very cheaply <laughs> in, uh, in uh, the economy that they have there. Um, anyway, nothing wrong with that. And that's, uh, that's normal. That's the way things have been, the way things continue to be. All right. We also have uh, literal uses and figurative uses of the verb to gain or to profit, such as in the church discipline passage and other uh, uses there. All right. Even First um, Peter three one, right? Don't you like First Peter three one with uh, quiet women and and husbands that need to be corrected, and uh, and notice what happens without a word being spoken. What happens? She wins. And uh, she wins her husband. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husband so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be cardino, they may be one. That she, she profits by saving her marriage. She profits by uh, being a blessing by association that, uh, that sparks her husband's repentance. Again, it's nonverbal. <coughs> as they observe the... Um, the behavior there, your chaste and respectful behavior. So figurative uses. The First Corinthians 9 illustrations as well. <clears throat> and um, though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. This is Paul's sacrificial love towards those that he was witnessing to. Because everyone that he leads to Christ is is prophet, as far as Paul's concerned, he's uh, he's reaping the the prophet here. Verse twenty, twenty one, twenty two, all in that same uh, in that same context. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may be all means means save some. And uh, those are the uses there. All right, so it's all about profit. And everything that had been a prophet to him, his childhood, his education, his pharisaical credentials, and everything else that had been a gain to him in his old manner of life in Judaism, he just reclassified all that as, as loss in his profit and loss statement and said there's a, there's a whole new way of functioning now that he was a church-age believer having crossed over into the New Testament. On the other side of Kurdos is Zemia. This is our word for loss, and um, used four times in the New Testament, uh, twice here in Philippians 3, and then the other two times in Acts 27. The verb has six uses, and uh, in, uh, in this sense, it not only is it, is it loss, as an economic loss or a personal loss, uh, but usually the, the undertone for this loss is the sense of how unnecessary it is, how tragic it is how sad it is that these things are lost in the, uh, in the context of a tragedy. And yet here, it's a very glad surrender. It's not something to lament that, oh, you know, it's a lost opportunity or it's a closed door, or it's a, you know, a, a loss uh, that you'll never get back. Um, no, here it's a glad surrender. He gladly counts it as a loss, not as uh, something to grieve over. Maybe the most important expression in this whole verse is the phrase, for Christ's sake. I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, or for Christ's sake. And 
I don't know if you remember this or not, we spent at least one class or maybe two talking about uh, doing something for the sake of somebody else. And what is a sake anyway? And uh, do, do, we, do we fully appreciate uh, the impact of for Christ's sake, for His benefit, for His glory, for His good pleasure? You know, when, when something is done for somebody else's sake, Jesus went to the cross for our sake, right? On our behalf, for our benefit, in our place. Well, this whole reclassification of thinking, this whole adjustment of our priorities, we're doing that, and you think we're doing that for our own sake. Well, not really. We're doing it for Christ's sake. Say, if you want to bear fruit, why do you want to bear fruit? For your own sake? How about for Christ's sake? He's the one that's worthy of it. And if, I, and if I'm laying up treasure in heaven, I want to lay up treasure in heaven, not for my own sake, but for Christ's sake. Because I want to have more that I can throw at His feet when the time comes to, uh, to do that. <clears throat> Direction, directionality is essential in many sake studies. Okay, The directionality. Which direction is it going? You know, are, are parents saving up for their children or children saving up for their parent? For whose sake does this happen? What direction does this go? That's why directionality is essential. And maybe you'll remember these from when we went through this or not. Mark, should get Randy up here to teach this. He's been spending a lot of time in Mark. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, but not man for the Sabbath. Okay, Now the, the sake concept is there, even if the word isn't in the English. But it's, it's for whose sake? Is, is man created for the sake of the Sabbath, or was Sabbath designed for the sake of man? And this is why directionality is critical. Because if you get the directionality on this backwards, then you are going to be at odds with the will of God. You know, you're going to become a Pharisee legalist and start using uh, uh, Sabbath rules to beat up, uh, you know, someone that doesn't measure up in your sight. But that's not why God gave the Sabbath. And so keeping the directionality in the right direction is, uh, is, is vital. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the sake of the Sabbath. And, uh, and, and that ought to be clear. Matthew 13, 20. Unless the, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. This is the mercy of God in the Great Tribulation. and what, uh, When He steps in and overrules and does not allow for Satan's objective to, uh, to exterminate the Jewish race or really even to exterminate all humanity. There's the potential to eliminate humanity in the Tribulation and God cuts it short so that doesn't happen. But it's for the sake of the elect. So sake studies. You want to pay attention to the direction on these things. John 12, 30. And um, here's Jesus and uh, saying, shall, uh, you know, uh, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He says, Father, glorify your name. And the voice comes out of heaven that says, I have both glorified it and we'll glorify it again. What an event. And uh, the crowd's trying to figure out what's happening. I think it's thunder or something. 
or an angel. But then Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. That's, that's huge. The directionality on that is, is huge. And, and to me, maybe the best application that you and I have to recognize is that quite often the testing we go through is for somebody else's sake besides ourselves. That it might be that somebody else is watching, or children are watching, or our, uh, a family member, or, or a co-worker, or somebody. And, and the reason why you were assigned that test was for somebody else's sake. That they can watch you glorify the Lord in that test. See? And obviously, when you stay faithful, God will bless you and, 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 and you will benefit, of course. But it may be that the test itself isn't even about you. It's not even for you in, uh, in different ways. And so, who's the voice for? My sake or your sake? All right. Of course, Romans 4, the just for the unjust. Um, all the theology of Romans here. it was credited him as righteousness, but not for his sake only was it written that it was credited him as righteousness. You know, Genesis 15, 6 is a great verse, but it was not simply for the sake of Abraham all by his lonesome. It's for everybody that believes in, uh, in God. Faith is credited, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So the things that are credited. The passage in Ezekiel is uh, pretty blunt. A lot of times when God acts, it's, it's not even it's not about us. It's not for our sake. Ezekiel thirty six twenty two, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you went. <laughs> He's going to bless them. He's going to return them to the land. He's going to resurrect them. We're going to get dry bones here in another chapter, and the nation will be resurrected. And they can't claim credit because it's, it's not about them. It's not for their sake. It's for His own name's sake. He made unconditional promises to a stiff-necked people, and all the nations are going to watch and behold how faithful God is with, uh, with His own nation. Verse 32 of the same chapter, essentially. He says, I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed, be confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. If you think about it, I think this concept even is implicit within 1 John 1 9. You know, when he forgives us of our sins, is it for us? It says, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. See, that's why I think there's something bigger in the view there besides just for our sake. It's for Christ's sake. It's for His own sake. It's for His own integrity. It's for the magnification of His own plan. And, uh, you know, we're just happy to collect some of the fringe benefits along the way. That uh, For the fact is that He desired to provide a perfect bride for His Son. I'm very happy that He chose to do that because I get to be a part of that. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's bigger than just I don't want to go to hell when I die. Um, that's, that's almost like uh, you know, the side effects of, of this medication. The, the real design is to, to pour forth, a, to create a perfect bride for his perfect son. Anyway, so we have that. Now, 
above and beyond those initial adjustments, Paul continues to make ongoing profit and loss adjustments because he regards any and all future gains. And so it's not just the, uh, the original recomputing that he did. He continues to do this. Let me get back to Philippians now and let's look at verse 8. So, um, because he said, I counted those as loss. But then in verse 8, he says, more than that. Right? More than that. It's like those late night commercials, you know. But wait, there's more, okay? More than that. I count. I continue to count. This is now present tense. This is not the past completed action. This is not what he did way back in the day. This is all day, every day, here and now, in the present tense. I presently, now, continuously count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so a uh, human viewpoint might be content or might be tempted moving forward to start to accumulate some additional uh, profits and uh, some uh, additional perks or additional uh, claims, uh, uh, claims to fame. And Paul says no. I'm not going to claim any additional of these claims to fame. They're all, I'm just letting them all go. I'm going to keep letting them all go. And so we have this uh, more than that, this yes indeed, this uh, yea doubtless. I kind of like yea doubtless. Let's, let's bring that back. Um, but really, this is, uh, this is a huge string. Allah menunga kai. Allah menunga kai. And uh, yeah, yeah, one, two, three, four, five conjunctions that are all uh, strung together in, in these three terms. Because menunga is three combined into one. Men and un and de, they all get combined into one. And then you have an ala for but, you have a kai for also. Very, very, uh, it's an emotionally passionate sentence. It's like somebody that is so passionate about what he's about to say that he just, he just gets his mouth engaged. He's just going, going, going. And, and maybe what came out wasn't exactly grammatical, but it's, it's, it's what, what he was motivated to get. And uh, that's how he's introducing this here. All right. The perfect indicative from verse 7 gives way to the present indicative of verse 8. And so the things that he had done in the past, he just continues to keep on doing in the present. Hegeomai, one of the several Greek verbs for reckoning, considering, imputing. It is is the thinking verb where you control what you think about something, right? You control, it's your estimation. It's your estimation of whether you consider it valuable or worthless. It's your estimation, and you choose to, uh, to uh, magnify what ought to be magnified and to minimize what ought to be minimized. And uh, if you're lined up with the Word of God, then there you've got it. When the comparison becomes so extreme, it, is, it becomes an incomparable contrast. It becomes an incomparable contrast. And the Bible enjoys doing this. Paul enjoys doing this in particular. He likes to take these extremes, you know, like, you know, talking about having faith so as to move mountains or talking about having knowledge. 
And what if the, you know, there was a spiritual gift, word of knowledge back then? And what if you had such knowledge that you even rose to the level of omniscience where you just knew everything? You know, that'd be pretty impressive, right? Unless you're minus love, and then Paul says it's worthless. Okay? And so the, this language of extreme can be, it's like if you don't, uh, you know, if you don't hate mother and father, then you don't love me kind of a thing. Jesus used the, used the same type of rhetoric. 2 Corinthians 3.10 Indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Right? And contrasting Old Testament glory with, with the body of Christ in the church. Because that was a glory. You can't, you can't say it wasn't until now. Now you can say it wasn't. Because compared to, right? You know, it's like in its time, the, I'm, the, the Model T Ford was, was quite a vehicle. Okay? I mean, not now, of course. Uh, but, but back then, okay? And so the idea of the law, the idea of something with a glory, um, and in, in particular, as we're making our readjustments of our thinking, the, uh, I think this is, this is just Christian growth. This is maturity. You know, the things that used to be big deals just aren't big deals anymore because the time is just so short. And, and I want to I know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so um, this then allows us to make the extreme comparisons whereby there is no comparison. See. 2 Corinthians 4 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And so it's a comparison, but it's so extreme. How do you make the contrast? You know, a comparison that's just so, it's like not even the same ballpark. Uh, comparing my golf swing with Tiger Woods, okay? Um, I guess we could have that conversation, but it's not really a comparison, see, in, uh, in that regard. 2 Corinthians 4.17, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You want to compare those two, thing, two things? Go ahead. Compare those two things. But they are so far apart, it's like, are, why are we even having the discussion? It's not even worthy to talk about. So that's the, uh, the idiomatic nature of that. Um, Ephesians 1.19, Ephesians 2.7, Ephesians 3.19. Really it forms uh, some important aspects here. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is Ephesians 1. So that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. The surpassing greatness of His power. That's just incomparable. That's incomparable. I mean, think about every time God uses His power. Like, oh, I don't know, creating the universe. okay, Or uh, other things that God's done with His power. The power of God in our life as church age believer priests. He says that's beyond the comparison. According to the working of the strength of his might. That's the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Jesus said, Greater works than these will you do. 
Jesus promised his disciples the church age was going to be beyond and above anything Jesus did in his first advent. All right, Ephesians 2, 7. In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I think the church age grace is beyond anything that's ever come before. We haven't seen anything yet. What's going to happen in the resurrection, what's going to happen in the millennium and fullness of time is uh, that's where the super grace, the surpassing grace comes about. In 3.19, the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. All right, so when comparison becomes so extreme, it is an incomparable contrast. <clears throat> we also learned the Greek word for excrement. And I know you wrote it down, you put it on your refrigerator. You guys now know how to say excrement in Greek. And this is what he talks about. He says, I count them, but... And we got a very PG word, rubbish, in verse 7. So when he says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what's just not even worthy to be compared. Throwing away all those things compared to knowing Jesus? Are you kidding me? That's, there's no contrast there. There's no, there's no comparison. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but dung. It's all just a bunch of, it's just a load of, it's just, and it's a vulgar term. It's actually a vulgar term, and the Holy Spirit inspired it, put it in the New Testament. Probably to test uh, little old church ladies for the next 2,000 years to see if they, uh, if they get offended by uh, a vulgarity that, that maybe slips out of the pastor's mouth or something. But it's in the Bible, all right? It's in the Bible because it communicates, it sticks. Anyway, um, we're very familiar with the term. And people that try to clean it up are really in denial of, of its usage uh, among contemporary uh, texts such as uh, Josephus in uh, his Jewish Wars when he talks about the siege of Jerusalem. Do you know what they were eating at the end when they were starving to death in uh, the siege of Jerusalem? It's pretty gruesome. You can read it in book 5 and uh, verse 571. Also Philo, he uses the vulgarity in uh, describing the nasty hiding places for venomous reptiles and all the nasty outhouses and refuse uh, dung uh, heaps that uh, these venomous reptiles like to to hide in. All right. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's where we spent about, I don't know, three or four classes dealing with knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. It's a much bigger concept than simply becoming saved. It's not, it's so much bigger than just becoming saved. Uh, in, in, if you think about it, uh, when you get saved, yes, you come to know the Lord. That's an idiom. We get it. Uh, we can even validate it with, uh, with uh, a passage of Scripture. But when you are, it's, it's also spoken of as an introduction. By faith we enter into this, by, we are introduced to this grace in which we stand. It's simply an introduction. Then the rest of our Christian growth and the experiential uh, uh, Christian walk is, is the intimacy of coming to know Him more and more and more. 
It's like, how well, how well did you know your wife on your wedding day? Versus how well do you know her now? Right? And the years that have come by and the more that we're intimate with the Lord, that's the, uh, the section here. Also, it's fun to look at this verse. Look at this section here. And you're going to notice that we have these verbal parallels with the Kenosis hymn from chapter 2. And so uh, this section has significant vocabulary parallelism, such as consider in chapter 2, 6 and chapter 3, 8. Uh, the form, right? He took upon himself the form of, of man in 2, 7. We have the form here in 3, 10. And uh, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. To be found, right? Jesus was found in appearance as a man. We are found, as it says here, in him. That we may be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own derived from the law. And then the Lord in 2.11 and in 3.8. So there's all these verbal cues between chapter 2 and chapter 3 that uh, many scholars have noticed and they feel is a, is a pretty big deal. And I agree. I think, it's, I think that it's uh, intentionally written that way to, to cause us to uh, pay attention to this with the same intensity that we had there in chapter 2. All right, that I may be found in Him, that I may know Him. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, knowing Him, and um, then being found in Him. All right. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. Why? So that I may gain Christ. That's our word again, for profit, for gain, for... uh, um, these things. And it's bigger than just getting saved. This is the uh, gaining or winning or profiting. Gaining Christ. It's not receiving Christ. It's not getting saved. It's profiting or winning. This is the experiential realization of our positional reality. This is where everything we have as believers shapes our thinking. And we start living the way we ought to be living based upon the life that He has given us. I'll restate this again. The experiential realization of our positional reality. Gaining Christ. Winning Christ. And that's where you're, you're appropriating it. It's, it's a reality in your walk. The life that you live, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so this, uh, I think, all comes together in this way. 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 1, 2 Corinthians 6 addresses that. What about being found in Him? Being found in Him. You know, you ever think of that? The, uh, the Christian way of life is a big game of hide and seek, and the whole point is don't hide. Uh, just, just be found. Just constantly be found. You know? I think um, maybe Matt can remind me. I, it seems to me I don't know. My memory is getting worse. But Especially in my childhood. I've locked out a lot of childhood memories. But the, my sister hated many of the things that we played. You know, like the quiet game. She just wouldn't participate. And so when we start the game, she would just immediately lose right away. She'd just start talking and say, okay, I lose. And then, and then she would just dominate the conversation for the next two hours because the rest of us were still playing the quiet game. And we were too stubborn to lose. And, and Mary was very happy to lose. And I think it was the same way with hide-and-go-seek. I mean, I, I just seem to remember that, 
you know, you, you cover your eyes, you're counting to ten, and ready or not, here I come, and then you open your eyes, and she's standing right there. Okay. You know, and she's like, I lose, and, and happy to, to lose, because, you know, didn't really feel like playing the, the game that the rest of us were playing. All right. Now that theory, actually, I think is neat for the Christian way of life, because we want to be found, we want to be found in Christ. Because the fact of the matter is, we are in Christ. I mean, that's just the positional reality. From the moment you believe, you are in Christ, right? That's the positional reality. But now, to be found in Christ means that others are watching that, others are seeing that, others are testifying to that. Fellow believers and unbelievers are testifying to that that you are being found in Christ. And so you have a public witness. You have a a cosmological display. That means men and angels alike are watching you in the cosmos. And when they see you, what do they see? They should see victory through grace. They should see a believer in Christ who is found in Christ. You don't want to be found in darkness. You don't want to be found in carnality. You don't want to be found in, uh, in, in other things you could be found in, right? You want to be found in Christ. That I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. See, another positional reality that we want to make an experiential realization so that when others look at you and they find you, they say, wow, that's a believer in Christ with a righteousness not of his own. All right. We are a cosmological display of victory through grace manifested both in time and in eternity. And there's so much to be said for this because we are on display. We are the, um, really, we are the, um, the closing arguments in the Father's uh, courtroom uh, uh, evidence that He's laying before the fallen angels. You know, uh, under innocence, under conscience, under promise, under law, now under grace. I mean, th- these are the closing arguments. When, when he raptures the church out of this world, the display is over. It's time for wrath, <laughs> okay? And that's going to be applied to, the, to Israel, to the nations. Um, the angels will be expelled, from, the fallen angels expelled from heaven. It's uh, really the church age is closing arguments to, to the angelic realm until he starts to reveal the upcoming messages that he has to give in the uh, in the thousand generations, all right. Anyway, so some of these um, were on display, and that should be pretty clear. Manifested both in time and in eternity. Do I have time for these? Yeah, real quickly. Matthew five sixteen. <coughs> Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's a cosmological display and it's a display of victory through grace. If you let your light shine in such a way that people are impressed with you, you're, you're shining your light in the wrong way. Okay, you gotta, It's got to be so that the Father gets glorified. That it's a testimony of victory through grace. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. 
Everyone who confesses me before man, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before man, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We should be on cosmological display and we should be pointing everybody to, to Jesus Christ. Acts 4.13 As they observe the confidence of Peter and John they're looking at these Galilean fishermen, right? These are like raccoon hunters from Kentucky or something. I mean, they're just they're just hicks as far as the the sophisticated uh, nobility of Jerusalem was concerned. As they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Okay, there's your testimony. There's your cosmological display. The whole world should look at you and say, wow, that's a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a brother, there's a sister that has such an intimate walk with the Lord. It just, you can just tell. I mean, just look at that. I wish I had that. You know, and that's the whole point in having this cosmological display. Titus 2, verses 7 and 8. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. I mean, at a certain point, if your testimony is the way it's supposed to be, then all they can do is just lie about you and slander you because there's no legitimate accusation they can make. And that's uh, as it should be. Hebrews 11 39 and 40. And these having gained approval through their faith. See, they're on display. There's a whole hall of fame here. Men of whom the world was not worthy, we're told. And having gained approval through their faith. 1 Peter 2.12 Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, see, they just have to make it up because it's not true. You know, they, they can get a special counsel together and investigate you for two years and spend $40 million and they can't find anything to charge you with. Not even probable cause to indict anything. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There will be a glory that will be realized at that time. All right. Knowing Him with three specific aspects. Here's how we're going to know Him. Knowing Him. (coughs) The power of His resurrection is the grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life. That's what the power of His resurrection is, and we should know that today. We should know that all day, every day. Walking in the newness of life. The fellowship of His sufferings is the grace empathy to suffer with and comfort one another. So we have a grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life, and then we have a grace empathy to suffer with and comfort one another. I don't know if you saw the email or not, but one of our church members, that was her mother is terminal. Did you see the email? We're praying, and um, we need to have this this uh, fellowship of sufferings because uh, when one member suffers, we all suffer. That's how it's designed. 
So we have a grace empowerment, we have a grace empathy. We also have a grace emulation being conformable unto His death. This is the grace emulation to sacrificially love and stay faithful until death. You know, Jesus loved His own, He loved them to the end. And uh, even when He's hanging there on the cross, He's praying on behalf of the, the ones that were crucifying Him, saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. You know, and you see the maximum love on display there when our Savior was obedient to the Father. And we're to be conformed to His death. This is what knowing Christ is all about. These are three aspects of knowing Christ in Philippians 3.10. And that was a whole hour right there, and you just got it in five minutes. But those are the verses of what we're looking at. All right. Finally then, and we've got seven minutes to talk about the rapture. I hope you remember this. This is probably not, it may be the most obscure rapture passage in the entire New Testament. You know, when you think rapture passages, what do you think? You're thinking 1 Thessalonians 4, you're thinking 1 Corinthians 15. Um, you guys are so smart, you probably think about um, maybe John 14. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I come again, I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's a rapture passage in John 14. We've got other rapture passages, including uh, further down in chapter 3. We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. That's a rapture passage there in in verses 20 and 21. But before we get to, to that one, we actually have this one in Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, in Philippians 3.11. And really, the, uh, the mindset for the three-faceted knowing Christ, it says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that's just an English rendering that needs help, it needs work. Uh, being conformable to His death uh, means that we are identified with the rapture of the church in order that I may attain to, in order that I might possibly, if maybe perhaps, if maybe perhaps I might live long enough to hear the trumpet. Okay? And uh, you remember, I mean, we spent one or two or more classes on that verse right there. Um, Because I I think the wrong approaches to that verse are, are ludicrous. You know, I mean, the people that that puzzled us out, that I might maybe be resurrected someday? What is that? You know, Paul wasn't, I mean, Paul had no doubt of the resurrection. Why would Paul have any question? You're talking about the author of 1 Corinthians 15 here, okay? If if there's no resurrection, we're not even saved. It's it's a waste of time. Paul is not wishy-washy on the resurrection. But you might remember, this is not a normal word for resurrection. In fact, it's a very unusual word. We have... um, there's uncertainty in the conditional particles of a post, the if perhaps. If perhaps. The biggest if perhaps. And you and I have the same if perhaps tonight. The same if perhaps is not that I'm going to be resurrected because every, everybody gets resurrected. Even unbelievers get resurrected when they stand before the great white throne. So I mean, resurrection's a given. But rapture is the possibility. Are we the rapture generation? 
And is it in our lifetime? Is it in this year? Is it in this month? Is it on this day? If perhaps I attain to the out-resurrection from the dead. So the uncertainty in the conditional particles, the uncertainty in the verb kat uh, anta'o, which is, an un, which is there's uncertainty in that verb. It's a verb for arriving. It's a verb for attaining. And yet there's, there's a lot of uncertainty with it. That Am I really going to get there? You know? And am I really going to get there? Is, am I going to live long enough to hear the trumpet in this mortal body? I hope we are. I expect we are. And then there's the unusual, the uniqueness the uniqueness of the resurrection noun. It's not just anastasis, right? Do you know somebody named Anastasia? Anastasia, that's the, that's the Greek word for resurrection. And that's not the word we have here. He could have used it if he wanted to, and in fact, he used it already in verse 10. That I might know him in the power of his resurrection. That I might know him in the power of his anastasis. When he says, if perhaps I may arrive or attain to the ex-anastasis, the out-resurrection. The out-resurrection. And what is the out-resurrection compared to the resurrection? Well, the out-resurrection is for those who don't have to die first to be resurrected. I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And so there's an out-resurrection whereby you can be resurrected without dying. And this out-resurrection is our ultimate we're out of here uh, shout of glory when that trumpet sounds. It is the, ex, it is the, the biggest exit uh, stage left this world has ever seen. Okay? And so my conclusion is that this is actually a rapture reference. And so when you want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, the biggest thing in the world that will help you in being conformed to His death is the, is the uh, comfort that we have knowing that that trumpet can sound at any moment. Even, uh, even if you're you know, surrounded by enemies on the verge of martyrdom, uh, that trumpet can still sound first before the, the stones start flying and, and uh, your physical death commences. And so uh, we do have a rapture. There was an article there by Earl Rodmacher in the uh, Schaefer Seminary Journal, Volume 4 from 1998. By the way, those are all uh, publicly available on the Schaefer Seminary website. So just go to schaefer.edu and uh, do a Google search of the schaefer.edu website uh, for Rodmacher, and uh, you'll find his journal article there in uh, Volume 4, going back to 1998. All right? Well, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for this review. And... uh, just in the, the little bit we've been looking at here tonight, Father, it's just, again, a reminder of the, the, the amazing depth of truth you provided for us over the last two years in studying this book. I thank you for the um, heavenly mindedness that's portrayed here in our citizenship, in our forgetting what lies behind, and our reaching forward to what lies ahead, in pressing on the upward way, in if perhaps attaining to the out-resurrection of the dead, the rapture of the church. What a, uh, what a glory, Father. Thank you for this book. Might it continue to impact us personally and corporately, collectively as a congregation for, uh, for many years to come. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.